Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, the editorial director of GMF, and I'm here today with Timothy Garden-Ash, who needs really no introduction, leading expert on European politics and culture and European history. And he's here to talk to me about 1989, reassessing 1989, the challenges to liberal democracy and how we address them. So, Professor Gartnash, thank you very much for joining me. Great to be here. You said 1989 was the best year in European history. That's quite a claim, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a long I, history. I put it out there as a challenge, and I haven't yet had anyone come back and say, what about 1783? So why do I make that bold claim? Because an extraordinary set of things happened or started to happen then. The peaceful, almost entirely peaceful dissolution of an enormous nuclear armed post-totalitarian empire. Empires don't normally collapse peacefully. This one did. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The, the wall invention the by the states and societies of Eastern Europe of a new model of revolution, nonviolent, negotiated revolution, the model of 1989 replacing the violent revolution model of 1789-1917, freedom and life chances for more than 100 million people, Transitions, difficult, imperfect transitions, but nonetheless transitions to liberal democracy all over Central and Eastern Europe. And in a way, what's most remarkable, the peaceful extension of the Western transatlantic liberal order, which we had built only between Western Europe and North America post-1945, to virtually the whole of Europe, not entirely, but most of Europe, we got pretty damn close to a Europe whole and free in President George H.W. Bush's great formulation. That's, that's quite a lot to happen in one year. We got pretty close to Europe whole and free with 1989 and sort of the years following. When do you think was the closest we got? When did the decline start, if you had to put a year So I am told that in... California, one can now be chirogenically frozen. And if I had been chirogenically frozen in 2004, I would have thought I would have gone to my temporary rest, a happy liberal European. That was the high point. Most of Central and Eastern Europe in coming into NATO, either in the EU or just about to come into the EU. The euro seemed to be going well. Europe was going to get a constitution, remember that? And what is more, and I witness this firsthand, the orange revolution in Ukraine. I will never forget standing on the Maidan, freezing cold. pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election. A sea of Ukrainian and European flags. And so, so successful did the liberal European model look that people round about us still wanted to join. Actually, that's also, in my view, the start of what I call the anti-liberal counter-revolution. A Russian journalist, Konstantin von Eggert, once said, 
the most important event in Russian politics in the last 20 years happened outside Russia. And he meant the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, because that's when Putin woke up and said, Cripes, the West is coming to my door. They're in my backyard, as he sees it. And so then you get the anti-liberal pushback. And then, of course, we, the West, in our hubris and liberal overreach, crash our own financial system. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. This is serious. This is a major... And I mean... In a sense, we're still in 2008. The reverberations of the financial and economic crisis, the damage it's done to the soft power of the West, we're still paying for that in 2019. Do you think these are separate streams, the external stream and the internal stream that were running along and then just collided? Or do you think one fed the other or which one was stronger? What's the relationship? So... Hegel says somewhere, das Wahre ist das Ganze. The true is the whole. I don't quite buy that. There's a great temptation to see all of this as being some vast interconnected system. Actually, I mean, there are some interesting connections. For example, one might think the euro crisis and the situation today in Poland and Hungary are quite separate. But actually, if you look at it, the euro was effectively born in the month after the fall of the Berlin Wall. The project was already there, but in response to the fall of the wall, this huge event on the prospect of German unification, François Mitterrand of France and Giulio Andreotti of Italy determined to pin Helmut Kohl down to a timetable for a European Monetary Union. And that's why, because it was an eminently political project, we get the deeply flawed and much too large Eurozone that we have today. So, so there are interesting connections back to 89. But on the other hand, you know, some of the phenomenon we loosely called populism, which after all you see in the United States, as in France, as in Poland, as in Britain, has to do with larger developments of, of sort of, um, as it were, globalized, financialized capitalism. Populism is a bit hard to define, or there are many different working definitions, let's put it that way. But at its core, it's a kind of revolt against the elite, or this idea that the people and the elite are separate. And we did this poll of the Brussels Forum participants and other transatlantic policy leaders and asked, is the biggest threat to democracy, external threat, inequality, things like this. And the answer most people chose was failure of political elite. Hmm to address what they need to address. So I wonder if the populism we're seeing, is it partly justified in that the elites really didn't do the job they should have done? There is a problem with the elite. The elite is not doing what it's supposed to do. And therefore, there is a sense where the elite are not handling things in the interest of the people. So, to adapt Tony Blair, tough on populism, tough on the causes of populism. We have to be both. And we have to understand that there are a bunch of legitimate grievances in the other halves of our own society. I mean, to put it, it is absolutely simplest what you could say that we, what we liberal internationalists got wrong in the last 30 years is that we spent a lot of time on the other half of the world and not enough time on the other half of our own societies. And if you're white, working class, poorly educated in a post-industrial town of Northern England, or in the Rust Belt in the US, or in rural Southeast Poland, you can feel you got a raw deal 
from, so to, so to speak, the liberal golden age. And it's not just economic inequality, it's also cultural. It's what I call the inequality of attention and respect. The fact that people in small towns, in villages, in old Rust Belt places felt that not only were they getting a raw deal in life, but they were being completely ignored and disrespected by liberal metropolitan elites who just turned their backs on them. And I think that's a justified concern. So we have to make the analysis, understand the legitimate causes of populism, and in renewing liberalism, which is what we need to do, address those concerns. Economic inequality, above all the inequality not so much of income as of wealth, accumulated wealth, right? There are two kinds of young people in Britain today, those who can afford to buy their first house and those who can't. And what makes the difference? The bank of mummy and daddy. That's not a good place for a, for a modern liberal democratic society to be. And this inequality of attention and respect, you know, we have to pay more attention to those who are left behind in our own societies. To jump to Hungary a bit, because I know this is a country that, you know, you've been watching, you, you care quite a lot about it, right? In 2009, people would have considered it a pretty consolidated democracy. And now it's the biggest problem for Europe, I would say. It's the sort of seen as the leader of this challenge to the European model. Viktor Orban said, and I, in, fact, in fact, I think you quoted it in a piece you wrote recently. Viktor Orban said, 30 years ago, we thought Europe was our future. Today, we believe we are Europe's future. What does he mean? And is he right? Hungary is very close to my heart. I spent a lot of time there in the 1980s. It was one of the leaders in the emancipation of East Central Europe from communism. It was a pioneer. I wrote about it at length in my book, The Magic Lantern, describing the revolutions of 1989. And then it seemed to be this great success story. So in 2009, Alfred Stepan, the political scientist, said this is a model of a consolidated democracy. Amazingly, in the decades since 2010, this democracy has been so far eroded and dismantled that I would now argue Hungary is no longer a democracy. A member state of the European Union is no longer a democracy. Take a moment to think about that. And what's more, the dismantling has been done with the help of European taxpayers' money, EU funds being used to build the system of control. It's a real shocker. And that, of course, the fact that Orban can, so to speak, have his cake and eat it, and, and by the way, also using Russian money and Chinese money, right? So you have it from, from all sides, gives him the self-confidence to proclaim that this is the new model of what he calls illiberal democracy. Now, first of all, illiberal democracy is a contradiction in terms. Either democracy is liberal or it isn't democracy. Second of all, I don't actually think that's the way history is going. It may look that way. Hungary is in many ways an exception. It's the only country inside the European Union which Freedom House classifies as partly free, which has rarely dismantled democracy. In Poland, in Slovakia, in the Czech Republic, they have very worrying populist illiberal tendencies, but still elections are there to be won. So I think there's actually going to be a very significant pushback by a more liberal Europe, and actually now by a more green Europe. And I think we've seen that in the European Parliament elections as well as in individual countries. So you, you're an optimist. You think 2019 looks 
Glad, but uh, I'm I'm a I'm a cautious optimist. <laughs> I would say. Um, I mean, I, I think analytically things look pretty bleak, but you know, I just saw a massive pro-democracy, pro-European demonstration in Prague last Sunday, and the very place where I witnessed the largest demonstration of the Velvet Revolution in 1989. In Poland, there's a big pushback. Slovakia has got a wonderful new liberal pro-European president. So there are a lot of indices. In other words, it's there for the winning, but we have to get the winning formula right, which means, first of all, renewing liberalism, working out how we do that, and secondly, winning the odd election. And that, whether in the United States or for liberals in Britain or almost wherever you look, we're not there yet. We haven't found the formula and the, the, the party structures and, and the leadership to translate the sort of new liberal agenda, as opposed to neoliberal, new liberal agenda, into election-winning politics. We haven't seen it yet. Is the European election, are there, were there certain parties, certain campaigns, are there politicians somewhere on the scene where you see the best germ of it? Yes. The Greens are doing incredibly well in Germany, stunningly well, coming out in polls even ahead of the CDU, way ahead of the Social Democrats. They're a very remarkable and interesting mix. The new grouping in the European Parliament, which is called Renew, which puts the Liberals together with Macron's En Marche and a couple of other groupings, that's exactly the space we need to be in. Uh, Renew is the right label. Um, we haven't yet got it completely together in the way that, say, post-45 social democracy got it together and proposed a package which was appealing to, to a majority in our societies. But I would say we're working on it. Okay, yeah, that sounds like some reason for cautious optimism. Cautious optimism. And by the way, if I may just say, yeah. cautious optimism in relation to the particular question we're talking about, that's to say anti-liberalism in Europe. If I look wider, if I think about the, the fact that we're not meeting the challenge of climate change, if I think about the digital revolution and AI coming down towards us, if I look at the relationship between China and the United States, it's much more difficult to be analytically optimistic about the global picture. Right, because we're struggling to sort of adapt and choose the right path and make the political choices internally, but not in a bubble. Meanwhile, there's a, there are forces working against that. There's competition. So, interesting connection to 1989. Today's China, with its peculiar mixture, which one might simplistically call Leninist capitalism, a dynamic economy, but still a very Leninist leadership, is as much a product of 1989 as are the democracies of Central and Eastern Europe. 4th of June 1989, the first semi-free election in Eastern Europe for 40 years in Poland, which leads to the first non-communist government in Eastern Europe, in Poland. The same day, the massacre on Tiananmen Square. I will never forget, I was in Warsaw, coming back to a newspaper office and seeing on a television screen the first pictures of the students being carted off the streets around Tiananmen Square. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. The death count goes on tonight. And, and it is out of that, 
learning lessons from the collapse of communist rule in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, the Chinese Communist Party has built a system which is a real ideological competitor to the West. And it's amazing to me, wherever I go in the world, I mean, Argentina, I was in Argentina a few months ago, uh, anywhere in Asia, of course, but also in Europe, you can't go 20 minutes without the word China being mentioned. I mean, in that sense, it's more like the Cold War, that it is a global multidimensional competition. Uh, and that's very challenging and I think very dangerous. There's this idea that there isn't a real challenge. I mean, the, the problem we're having is sort of illiberal democracy as a kind of weak challenger ideologically to liberal democracy. Um, but you just said that we are actually, I mean, maybe we do have a real so, so, ideological so challenge. here's the connection between the internal and the external challenge. Viktor Orban, in describing a liberal democracy, says you want dynamic uh, growing economies, you want healthy uh, nation states, look at Russia, look at China. So they, there's a model out there. And while I think Leninist capitalism has internal contradictions which are quite acute and will become more acute with time because we know that Leninist regimes are not good at managing the problems of complex modern economies and societies. Nonetheless, seen from Africa or seen from Latin America, authoritarian capitalism looks pretty good by comparison with, with a West that is in crisis. And I think that ideological competition is actually good for us. I mean, the reason we became complacent and hubristic after the end of the Cold War is we thought we didn't have a competitor anymore. And so in that sense, you know, there's a, there's a silver lining to that cloud. Which is itself a sort of creative capitalism, right? That competition makes everyone fitter and stronger and creates a healthier system. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Right. That was uh, Rachel Tausenfreund with uh, Professor Timothy Gardner-Ash. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. 